Well, this morning, I get to preach from Ezekiel. Any Ezekiel scholars in the room? Uh, Ezekiel, someday, I'll teach through the whole book of Ezekiel, because I, I really like the book. It's really strange, though. It's very weird. Ezekiel is a strange guy. So rather than take too much time here at the front end to set the stage of what's going on, I'll just suffice it to say, Ezekiel is a prophet, okay? And God is going to call him to do some pretty strange things. I'm going to start in, verse, in chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter, chapter 4. And so I want you to imagine what this would look like. I want you to imagine the people who would walk by him, what the city, town square would be like, what they might be thinking, what he might be thinking. Let's go to God's word and read together. God says to Ezekiel, And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works around it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it. What siege works are? This is a city that's coming under attack. Okay? Nobody's allowed in. Nobody's allowed out. The siege works are going to, catapults and such are going to break down the walls, battering rams and mounds and planks so that the invading armies can climb up it and get over the, you've seen movies like this, right? And you, take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side. And bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you. A day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem. With your arm bared. And you shall prophesy against the city. And behold I will place cords upon you. So that you cannot turn from one side to the other. Till you have completed the days of your siege. And you take wheat. And barley, beans, and lentils, millet, and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From day to day, you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen. From day to day you shall drink. God ever ask any of you to do something tough? I thought he had, till I read this. Verse 12, and you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight. On human dung. And the Lord said, 
Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. And I said, Ah, Lord God, this is Ezekiel talking. Behold, I have never defiled myself for my, from my youth up till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this, that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Let's pray. God, your word contains all kinds of things, all kinds of different writings, all kinds of time periods, warnings, blessings, curses. Help us, Lord, to understand a bit, just a bit from your word today, what you'd have to say to us. In Christ's name, amen. I, uh, as a pastor had the opportunity pretty often to hear from people. And, and you know how it is. Well, maybe you don't. I'll tell you. But people uh, are more likely to share things with me than they would just a regular group of people. So I hear about a lot of pains. I hear about a lot of stresses and anxieties. One of the things I hear pretty frequently, actually, is the pain of a loved one who is not following the Lord not following the Lord, or even just making a mess of their lives, right? Even just making a mess of their lives. It's, 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 it's not just the pain of seeing a loved one hurt, because that hurts. If I see my child or my, my, my wife sick or maybe in the hospital, that hurts, sure. But it's like a double-edged sword because the person, and they could be running like, in, like a prodigal in a far-off country. They could be just... Uh, arrogant and stubborn in their unbelief. They might be addicted. That's a big problem nowadays and in our neighborhood here. Addiction. It's a double-edged sword because not only do I see them suffer and I love them, but it kind of hits me at the heart because what did I do wrong? They're not just hurting themselves. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting what I have taught them. They're rejecting uh, the example that I have set. What did I do wrong? I thought I had more influence in this person's life than that. And so you wonder, is anything that I'm doing making a difference? Is it worth anything? My prayers, the example that I'm setting, the careful uh, practices that I've put in place in my life, is it any, does it matter? Because look, there they go. There they go again, Right? Do you think Ezekiel felt that way, laying on the dirt, laying in the dust for, what did he say, 390 days? 390 days ago, January 11th, 2018. I'm impressed at how fast I did that. <laughs> I might have looked beforehand. Maybe. 
January 11th. Imagine lying in the town square, being a spectacle like this, losing weight, wasting away, eating uh, just a cup of food and a cup of water a, a day. And for what? For what? These people just keep walking by. They believed that he was a prophet. Most people, most of the Israelites, especially the elders, and they believed that he was a prophet. But they didn't get what he was saying. They never understood that the, 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 the whole point here is that this is what your sin is, guys. This is what your sin does when it separates you from God. This is what you're asking for when you go your own way. You see, Ezekiel is prophesying. He's an Israelite, but he's prophesying in Babylon. You know why he's prophesying in Babylon, right? Do you know? That's where, that's where many, if not most, of the Jews were at this time. Because, see, God chose Israel to be his people, to be different, to be weird. You know, like the bread with the leaven inside it, right? To be different in the world. All these surrounding nations, uh, they, in a world that was, that was dog-eat-dog and take care of yourself. No, 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 no. Israel was supposed to what? Care for the orphan and the widow. Right? In a world that was tribal and, and, and maybe, maybe nationalistic, you would say. Israel was supposed to what? Care for the foreigner among you. Treat him just like you would the native born. So says the law of Moses. In a world that where the powerful ate the weak, the strong ate the weak. In Israel, that's not how it's going to be. God said an eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. You know that passage has nothing to do with vengeance, right? That passage is about equity. Equal treatment under the law. If you steal from somebody, it doesn't matter if you steal from a prince or from a pauper. The punishment is the same. See, in most of the world, if you stole from a poor person, who cares? Not in Israel. And so God gave them all these other rules, dietary rules, and he gave them circumcision, very important. He gave them the feast days that they were supposed to observe, and a whole bunch of other things. And all of that was supposed to be, you guys are supposed to be the, 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 the example, the picture, the closest picture that there is to the kingdom of heaven in the world today. That's what you guys are, gonna, are supposed to be. And God gave them the best land there was in all the world. The Bible says it was a land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them the best land there was in all the world to do this. And he surrounded them with pagans or, or with nations that, that, that didn't know God, that didn't know his laws, that didn't know what the kingdom of heaven was supposed to be like. And what did Israel do? What did they do? They were not content. Generation after generation after generation, they were not content to be God's people. They saw their neighbors and they saw what they had, and they got jealous. They got envious. They, wa- they wanted to be like them. That was their sin. They wanted to be like them, not like the people of God. Take a look at just a couple maps. I'll give you a picture of what's going on here. So God allows Israel to experience uh, the consequences of their sin. He says, all right, you want to do things your own way. You like that lifestyle more than the lifestyle that I've 
created for you. Very well, I will remove my hand of blessing from you, and I will allow you to experience just what that lifestyle is like. And so all of that orange, the light orange, is the Assyrian Empire coming in. And this is Israel here to the left. It's Palestine, really. But uh, the Assyri- all of this light orange is the conquest of the Assyrian Empire in, after the fall of the northern kingdom. Israel was divided into two kingdoms, north and south. The northern kingdom fell. But then look, even God in his mercy and in his patience, see that dark orangish spot there? Oh, Brett gave me the pointer here. There's Jerusalem. There's Bethlehem. That is, that's Judah. That's the remnant of Judah anyways. And that Judah held out for about 100 years. Judah held out. The Assyrians attacked him and attacked him and never could conquer him. But then came Nebuchadnezzar. Then came the Babylons. And the Babylons, the Babylonians, whooped the Assyrians. And then they came and conquered Judah, destroying Jerusalem's walls, destroying the temple, carrying the people back to Babylon. This is where Ezekiel is when he's prophesying. This is what he's talking about. So that's why when he's laying on one side, his left side for all that time, symbolizing the weight of the punishment for the northern kingdom, the other side symbolizing the weight of the punishment for the southern kingdom. Did I have another map? I can't remember. Right. So you can see the the purple line are the people of the northern kingdom being taken into captivity. And then the green line are the people of Judah being taken to Babylon over here in present-day Iraq and Iran. So this was the punishment that God gave them. And now when you hear the word punishment, some people, especially non-believers, will want to paint God. They read passages like this, and they'll want to paint him as cranky, a temperamental old man who just can't wait for people to screw up so that he can squash them. And that's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here at all. The language that Ezekiel uses, and read the whole book, it's just, it's just so powerful. The language he uses again and again is that of, of an adulteress, an adulterous wife. That's how he wants you to feel the weight of the of the pain that the people have caused him, of the offense that they have committed against him. If you go back to that map of Judah, go back to the map with just Judah in the middle. Now here is Judah, the bride, let's call it, the bride of Yahweh. Best land, most powerful God. Took him through the wilderness, freedom from slavery in Egypt, gave him everything. Give him everything. He loved them. He loved them so much. They were his prized, precious possession. You can, remember, you can imagine a wife, maybe, who has a husband like that. None of you do, because your husband is not God. But imagine the perfect husband, perfectly loving, perfectly giving, the best at everything, right? But yet, you see over the fence. And you see... And you believe that guy over there just a little bit more attractive. 
he's got something that you think you're God's. Or his, him, him and the ladies that he's with, they just seem to have more fun, don't they? And so you do, what do you do? You invite him over. Right in front of God. Right in front of God who's given everything and created this perfect world for you. You just keep, and you don't just do it once. Every guy in the neighborhood. And Ezekiel gets obscene. You don't want little kids reading Ezekiel. It is not PG rated. About how he accuses Israel. But this is the picture he's painting of what your sin does to your relationship with God. This is the picture he's painting. That's why he needs Ezekiel. He needs Ezekiel to deliver this message. But now we get to a problem. And that's the problem of influence. The the title of, or or the main uh, theme that I wanted to talk about today is this idea of influence. Ezekiel, does he have any influence? Does he have any influence at all? He must have felt like he didn't. Because nobody cared. Maybe they rolled their eyes at him. He's the crazy old coot, the crazy old prophet. There he goes again. What's he doing this time? They just didn't get it. They didn't pay any attention. They, They couldn't believe that they were really that bad. They couldn't believe that they were really that guilty. Not as all that. And so... Here this poor guy is. God gave Ezekiel visions. He gave Ezekiel some awesome visions towards the end of the book of what it's going to look like. Because, because God's not going to give up on his people. Even though she keeps, you know, every guy in the neighborhood, she keeps bringing over into the, into the house right in front of him and all that, right? He's seen it all. God has endured it all. But God has made a promise, see? He's made a promise. This is his wife. These are his people. He loves them, and he will not abandon them, no matter how bad things get. And he gives Ezekiel this, you know, the, the, have you ever heard the story of the, the dry bones, the valley of the dry bones? That's a famous, that's the most famous passage from Ezekiel in chapter 37. But he gives him more visions than that, just visions of the restoration of Israel, the purification, the forgiveness. What God, what's God going to do ultimately, of course? He's going to take their sin on himself, isn't he? Isn't that a powerful, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing using the imagery of husband and wife? And what's God going to do? He's going to take the sin of the wife, of us, all of us, and he's going to suffer the consequences so his wife doesn't have to. What? That's what he's going to do. That's the gospel right there. But with Ezekiel, he didn't get to see that. Ezekiel didn't know about Jesus. He didn't know that God was going to take care of the problem himself on a cross one day. He just got some visions, and he had to go with that. When it comes to influence, I hope you've shared your faith. I hope you do share your faith Whenever you get the chance, I hope you pray for opportunities to share your faith. But it can be hard. It can be easy to wonder, does it make a difference? Because I've shared my faith plenty of times with people who just say, oh, that's interesting. And that's it. They don't really want to talk about it any, any, any further than that. I, I want us, though, to talk just about 
three things that we can see here in the life of Ezekiel when it comes to influence. Now, whether you're talking about somebody in your life who's gone off the rails or you're talking about uh, the church, as I, as I mentioned these, th- actually, I want you to think along both of those lines as I mentioned these three, these three points. I want you to think both as you as an individual and I want you to think of us as the church when I mention each of these three points. And the first point is, you can write these down on your notes page if you want, and the first point is that, that, that you don't need to do great things for God. You don't need to do great things for God. A lot of people think that uh, the way that you know you're significant or important is if you, uh, well, in my line of work, what, if you, get, if you build a megachurch or if you're baptizing thousands of people or if you're sending out dozens of mission teams a year or if you're writing books and getting millions of copies sold or if you're speaking at conferences or what is it for you? What is it for you? that you've been told or you've been tempted to believe you have to do in order to be blessed or important for God. Did you know, I'll let you in on a dirty little secret, that God doesn't need any of that? God doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need St. Andrew to do what he's going to do. He doesn't. He doesn't need St. Andrew. He doesn't need, what's the big one? Willow Creek. He doesn't need it to do what he's going to do. Did Ezekiel have a huge following? Laying there in the dust in the middle of Babylon? Did Ezekiel build a mega church? Did Ezekiel, my goodness gracious, talk about a failure. At least in the minds of people. In the eyes of people. What about the New Testament? Apostle Paul. Did he have a mega church? Apostle Paul. He planted lots of churches. But we talked last week about all the things that Paul lost. For the sake of Christ. Sitting there in a, in a jail cell at the end of his life. huh? And he was happy to do it. But was he ever a, a, a mega star or a celebrity? You know most of the churches Paul planted. Were pretty small when he died. Teetering on the edge of closing the doors. Was Jesus a rock star? Far more people rejected him than followed him. Today we look at a big church or a big online ministry and we think, Wow, that pastor has a private jet. God must sure be, surely be blessing his ministry. That's nonsense. God does his most powerful work through your simplest obedience. He does his most powerful work through your simplest obedience. The second thing I see from Ezekiel here is that, you know what? Obeying God might stink, and you might get hungry. Obeying God might stink, and you might get hungry. Ezekiel's called to lay in the dirt for a year and a half, among many other crazy things. I already mentioned what Paul lost to follow Jesus. Do you know all the disciples of Jesus lost their lives or were exiled for his sake? At the end,
Why? Doesn't God want what's best for his children? Doesn't God want you to be healthy and wealthy and wise? It's popular to think that. And you can sell a lot of books right in that message. As one popular preacher has said, Today know that God doesn't want you to be dependent on a handout, a discount, or leftover bread. He doesn't want you to live like that's your only option. That's not who you are. So have a bigger vision. God has abundance in front of you. He is the God of more than enough. Boy, that sounds good. It's too bad, as Steve Brown would say. It's a lie from the pit of hell, and it smells like smoke. That's a bummer, but it is. The vast majority of God's people around the world are not educated. They lack proper nutrition and water, and they have no money at all. Most people in the Bible are not healthy, wealthy, or wise. Some are, for sure. Just like there's some people in this room, healthier, wealthier, and wiser than others in this room. But you know, at the end of the day, what happens to each one of us? We all end up in a box, don't we? Not a very healthy place to be. And then they close the box, and somebody else is going to take all your money. And the only wisdom that will matter at that point in time is whether or not you'll bow the knee to Jesus. And the last thing I see in the example of Ezekiel, when you love God, even when there's nothing in it for you, maybe especially when there's nothing in it for you, when you love God, you have influence. Ezekiel's audience, they never got it. They never got it. They didn't want God himself. They wanted what God could give them. But Ezekiel did. Ezekiel loved God. And because Ezekiel obeyed, the people saw the truth. Not only the Israelites, but all the Babylonians who passed by day after day. Ezekiel had influence, and God continues to teach us about sin and consequences and call us to repentance through the great and very, very strange prophet Ezekiel. See, we want to exert power, or we want to exert influence by force or by a strategy. So we read parenting books, or we get together and we form committees through great leadership techniques. So we go to seminars or we learn from the gurus or we're going to get the, get, get, get the right kid's Bible and maybe they'll follow Jesus after high school. We're going to say the right words and maybe she'll finally check into rehab. If we as a church can just get the right people elected, then all will be well. In some eras of church history, the church has wielded the sword to make people follow God. But it cannot work that way. That's not how God's influence has ever worked or will ever work. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom in which the rich serve the poor, the strong look out for the weak. Men and women love God with all their hearts and all their time and all their money, with all of their relationships, and they love one another as they love themselves. And that doesn't make sense on anybody's spreadsheet or in anybody's budget. The numbers don't balance. That's certainly not how you build a mega church or a mega corporation, is it? 
It's not efficient because love is not efficient. Love is not cost-effective. Love is not logical. Love is the giving away of yourself for another, expecting nothing in return. And love is influence. Love is the most influential moment in the history of the most influential life of the most influential man. He was penniless, deserted by his friends and family, an enemy of the state, naked, beaten to a bloody pulp, nailed to a cross. And what does the gospel say? Now is the judgment of the world. Now, by doing that, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That is influence. Lent started about 10 days ago. We don't make a huge deal about Lent with a lot of practices or rituals, but we talk about it. We see it as a tool. It's a tool. The season of Lent is a tool. How will you use this tool? Will you use this tool during this season to practice this kind of radical love of God, this kind of radical obedience? What is it in your life where God is, maybe he's been calling you for a long, long time. You've got to obey me here. I know you're, you're comfortable and you're used to obeying me and this 90%. But you know, I still want the 10%. I still want the 10%. Because it's just like looking over at the neighbor and inviting him to come over for a midnight romp. Even 10%. Even 5%. That's what you're doing. It's bad for you. It's bad for you. I love you too much for that. Choose an act of obedience this Lent that you can practice. Not to get something out of God, because he already loves you as much as he can. Not to get something out of him, but to love him.